Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Inspire the Podcast with myself, Nicola Wills. Today, we have a very special guest who is one of the most inspiring people in my life. At the age of 59, she built an online business that set her free from a life she no longer wanted, and she found true love at the age of 60. When she was 24 years old, she gave birth to a little boy with a unique chromosome abnormality. In fact, he was one of only 12 in the world at the whole time with this condition. Her strength, love and kindness is felt in everything she does. Please get your tissues ready. Welcome my mum, Pam Wills. <laughs> Hi mum, welcome to the Hello. show. Hello. <laughs> oh, so I just wanted to share actually with it, with, with everyone, because um, when I've been doing polls on my Instagram, I was like, you know, who do you want to hear from? Like who would be your dream guest? So many people wrote your mum. And, you know, you do have a social media account and you do share, you know, your life, not not all the time, but a lot of it, you know, we over the last, gosh, five, six years, haven't we? We've really shared our life as a family. And I think people just love what you have done. And, you know, you just a real, a real inspiration to show that life doesn't begin and end. You know, when you're over 50 or over 60, you're, you're living your best, best life right now and you know you've just come back from holiday with the new man in your life which isn't my dad and and you're just thriving and I know this over this last few years with everything with our brother with my brother your son you know it has been particularly you know challenging and difficult and for those of you that don't know you know just tuning to the podcast for the first time we lost Graham just my brother age 38 last um October October the 4th and, you know, it's it's having a Graham, having a son, having a brother with severe disabilities shaped our life in a way that is unim- unimaginable to others. And I just wanted to get you on this podcast, and I'm sure like so many other people, who is Pam Wills? Where did it all begin? How has she been able to be this powerhouse mom raising this family she's got two girls one's living in Ibiza you know doing a podcast building an online business the other one's a tattoo artist and then we've got Graham she's gone through a divorce she's found love again like she's living and all the time you've got a smile on your face you're kind everyone's just like loving you it's like right we need to find out so mum tell us all where did it all begin oh man I mean, I'm I'm quite ordinary, really, <laughs> and it all began. Um, I grew up in the Midlands, so I was one of three girls growing up in the Midlands. Um, my dad was a coal miner, and my parents were Geordies and Salvation Army, and then they came to the Midlands and we settled there. And there was a big age gap between me and my sisters, so my middle sister was seven years older, my eldest sister, 12 years older. So a big, big gap. So I was um, the latchdoor kid, really, you know, that my mum, we we were very working class. My mum had to go to work um, when I was very young and leave me with, you know, people. And there weren't many people around. So I very quickly, from the age of probably seven eight I used to go home to an empty house 
And, you know, these days that wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be a lad happen, yeah. but it did then. Um, and I, you know, I just, I went to a local school. I just, I just, you know, was average at school. And, you know, but that, that was my childhood. My childhood there was so full of love and and kindness and happiness my mum would you know every we would greet each other with a kiss in the morning kiss at bedtime kisses were going out the house kisses came in you know it was always always like that um so i i grew up um i went to secondary school i wanted to go to grammar school but i was never uh, intelligent enough to do that but i wanted i wanted to be the popular kid and you know i, I was just quite average really i remember um when I was about nine, I told my friends that I had a monkey that was at home and got them to come round to my house to see the monkey at lunchtime. And of course, there was no monkey there, but I just wanted to be popular. <laughs> and I was even in the house saying, oh, the monkey's under the sideboard now, he's under the sofa. And of course he wasn't, because we didn't have a monkey, but I wanted to be more popular than, than I was. Oh my God, that is the cutest story. Imagine playing you've got a monkey. <laughs> I totally get that, you know, especially in the school environment, like to be popular, that's all that mattered back then. Yeah. And so at school, and, and mom, didn't you wear an eye patch for a, I was really telling us that story. Yeah. You know, I, I wore, um, had a squint and well, had a, they called it a lazy eye. So my, my, Left eye, yeah, they covered the right eye up. Well, 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 they covered my my but good eye up to make the lazy eye work. And um, I got a photograph of me in a gorgeous little bob, the patch on my eye, wearing my pleated dress. <laughs> um, but yeah, I walked, I remember walking like a clown because my I just had got no coordination. My feet, I was like Bill and Ben, the flower pot men, like, oh, walking nice. Um, but yes, you know, I had to, I, but what happened then? It did work because it made my, um, my weak eye so much stronger than that. That became my, yeah, my strength over the years because that was my uh, predominant eye. Oh, so there's this little, little girl, Pam, basically walking home at school on her own into an empty house. Yeah. Um, you know, because your parents were working, it was, it was, tough you know being at kingsbury weren't you brought up in yeah in um in the midlands we, we used to drive past our the house when we used to go and visit grandma and granddad didn't we so to drive past that little house and it just you know from the life that we went on to living as a family being brought up by the seaside in bournemouth seeing this little house it was just it's just so like a million miles from what i knew so you know that how far you have gone in the, in the growth from that little girl is just amazing. And so you then you're at school and you left school quite early, didn't you? I guess 16 was quite normal back then. Yeah, I will add to when you when you are so used to being on your own as a, a, a small child, you envy your, the people who I used to envy my friends who got their brothers and sisters, their mum at home for the school holidays. But it makes you really independent because yeah. I used to, you know, cut the grass and you know, do things for my dad. Yeah, pushing. I didn't have a, a, a fly mower or anything in those days. Push along the mower that um, cut the grass so that our grass looked as nice as the people up the road. And, you know, and they, they all sat down to lunch together and I'd, you know, I, 
even used to have an oxo and dip my bread in a cup of oxo because mum would say don't you know don't put hot plate on don't cook because you were you know you were just on on your own so you were making food for yourself age seven and eight on your own yeah yeah just simple things boil a kettle put sprinkle an oxo cube into a cup <laughs> add the water there's your lunch yeah that's so cute it, but what that did to me, that subconsciously, that must have had an effect on me because yeah. when I when I had my children, I was determined that I always want to be there, you know, for them. And it was only it wasn't through choice; it was necessity that I had to be on my own. Um, so I always wanted to be there for my children. Yeah, and you absolutely were. So you age sixteen, you left school, yes. and. Where did you work? I went to, well, <laughs> I was very good at shorthand and typing. So my, I got really good typewriting speeds and shorthand speeds. So I went, um, you know, I, um, I worked for an engineering company. I didn't really like it much. Um, and I, but I'd only got myself to blame because uh, when we went for the interview, there was, from my school, there was a, a different girl interviewed every day of the week so and um, the teacher said you have to give if anyone if anyone is offered the job you you turn it down and told everybody has been off uh, had the chance for an interview and and then the, the company can select well i was the wednesday girl and they offered it to me and i just got a bit too big from the bridge said yeah, yeah i accept <laughs> and you know i hated that job i hated it it was in an engineering company that I didn't like, um, but I, you know, I went on to sort of. Then I went to work uh, at the oil depot in the Midlands. The oil depot is really big, so I went there as a receptionist. And you know, I was just just ordinary, just yeah, yeah, taking orders, short-hand typing. Um, but what when I lived in the village, I befriended two um, two young men who were from very different families, but they both had um, learning disabilities. There's one young man had a, a um, he was Down syndrome, and the other had a learning disability, and he used to pinch my dad's fish from his pond. And my dad had big fish like this, and he used to nick the fish. And my dad used to go berserk. But I was always like, no, no, dad, don't be horrible. You know, it, it doesn't understand. And just, you know, just, just, and he, he let him be. But I would mm. talk to these young guys. One would be live near the bus stop. So when I used to go to catch the bus, he would be there going, hi, hi, Bram Bridges, hi, Bram Bridges. I mean, have a hug. And I was just really, really kind. And and I think that you know the universe was if if there was ever Graham looking down thinking where you know where am I going to go I'm you know the universe chooses yeah. where disabled people are going um, disabled babies babies are going to need extra care they probably looked down and thought oh she's she's a bit of fun <laughs> she'll stick up for us and um, yeah. so yeah so yeah growing up I was yeah just. I would have the in school. I had the voted the shortest skirt in the, in the as a fifteen year old. I was so proud of it. <laughs> and mum, can you just can you remember? You know, obviously when we were growing up, 
you know, we would talk about like our dreams of what we want to be when we grow up. Did you ever like think, oh, you know, I would love, did you have like a dreams or ambitions or was it just very much just like living each day and just follow what everybody else was doing? I wanted to be a secretary. <laughs> oh, I wanted to wear my high heels and um, you know, tight clothes and walk around the office. <laughs> that's what I did. Yeah. yeah, that's what I did. And um, yeah, it's gone, isn't it? And yeah. it was just a different. It's a different world, though, isn't it? Back then, it, you know, the and very, uh, you know, very quickly, you, you know, you got that job and the, the second job that you actually liked, and that's where you met Dad, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. So um. It's an, an oil depot. Anybody who doesn't know that what well, it is, it's like we were a few females. Like I think in the whole of the building, there was five females. My best friend now, I <laughs> the meat. I received the meat in the loo for a chat. <laughs> but eleven o'clock, and then I see you at twelve o'clock. Yeah, you know, all day long. Um, but. Yeah, because it was predominantly men everywhere. The men knew the females in the in the building in the block, and you know, obviously, I was the young female, and everybody knew the females. And yeah, and and he was he worked in, in the garage. He, he used to uh, repairing the fuel tanker, the pet tankers, and that. So yes, um, that's um, he knew me. He knew you, yeah. And you'd, isn't it ironic that you wanted to be the most popular girl at school, but in the oil defo, you were definitely the most popular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and we met at a nightclub and, um, yeah, we it was a local nightclub. And he, I didn't used to go clubbing, not like in these days, I didn't go clubbing or anything. So when I did I'd go out once a month to a nightclub, I met him and yeah, and then we just yeah, met, fell in love and then relocated to, to Dorset. So that's when, um, yeah, we packed up everything, said goodbye to everything yeah. back home and, and moved to Dorset. And that was a massive deal. You know, obviously nowadays we're all moving across country and it's so easy, but back then you you didn't people didn't really move from where you, you were and so you know you went from the midlands to i guess it was like a better life to be by the coast right yeah. you know and that's and i know that would have been a massive deal mum for you to leave your family and leave your mom and yeah and so how do you feel at that time were you excited or nervous because you were pregnant with graham weren't you then yeah. so yeah you were you were just 15 months old well you were when we were relocated you were 14 months or well, 13 months old and um and we had to sell everything you know we had to pay double the price for our home in the south mm. as we did in the you know the midlands we had um, dad had just bought a beautiful brand new bmw that he had to sell um to make a bit of money on that and we sold and we scrimped and saved to move to to dorset and then we found a beautiful home um, in, in Corfmillan in Dorset. And again, the universe planted us in that home because our neighbours were a couple called Dinah and Jim, and they were just incredible. They were like, um, in Dinah was like a Mrs. Doubtfire. 
Mm. The day that we, you know, viewed the house, I was heavily pregnant, and she said, "Hello, over the wall. Hello, can I help you?" <laughs> and she showed us showed us around the empty house. The house was empty. We were able to move in really quickly, and we had just got settled. And six weeks later, um, Graham arrived. Graham arrived um, much earlier than he should have. He came, he came, yeah, he came early, probably to save his life. They're looking up now. Um, and, um, yeah. And everything changed. Everything the world changed. that you thought that was going to be, oh, it's so emotional. Like, cause I can just imagine, you know, like dad and you're so excited. You moved to house, new location. And then you've got me who's 15 months and then you're going to have a little boy. And it's like completing this perfect little vision you know, you're upgrading your life, you're, you know, you're, you're making it. And then, you know, Graham, which changes everything. So tell us, mum. Wow. Yes. I mean, so, so I was absolutely ecstatic that we'd got a little boy because I was one of three girls yeah. and I was, you know, I just, I wanted a little boy. Um, but the, he had been my best pregnancy out of the three pregnancies that I had. He was the best, and of all the, he just slipped through all the nets. Or I had all the tests that were available at the time, and he slipped through. Mm. He was determined he was coming. Um, so he, it, it was the, the day I gave birth. I mean, bearing in mind that we didn't have any um, mobile phones. Yeah. I didn't have, even have a house phone. I. We, because we weren't connected um so you had to go to the public phone box so i remember going to the public phone box to say hello um i think my waters have broke and they said oh we're just doing a, a little wee <laughs> oh, oh okay in the phone box oh, okay then um just we'll go home and relax and then and then we went back to the phone box and said oh it's still still happening so they all oh, come in come so we went in and they examined me and they said, oh, you, yeah, your waters are broken. And you were like 15-month-old little one running around the labour ward, sitting under my bed eating Walker's crisps because we got nobody to look after you. Because the two people that we knew, Dinah and Jim, had gone off on holiday. That we were in a new area um, and with a baby arriving and a toddler that the hospital said, you need to go take this little one home. Just get anybody to look after her tonight. And because the baby will come tonight. So dad took you off. And then when he came back to the hospital, um, Graham had arrived. He'd arrived, you know, so he, he, he missed the birth. I was wearing a blue nightie and, you know, feeling very proud of myself. <laughs> and, and that, and that was fine. That was, we thought everything was wonderful for a day. Yeah. And then, you know, the next day he still wasn't feeding. And bearing in mind, if Graham had been my first child, I wouldn't have been any the wiser, but I'd only had you the year previously. So I knew that he, was, he wasn't he was feeding. He wasn't feeding from me, wouldn't breastfeed, he wouldn't drink water. He just had a screwed up little face that was like, oh, you know, oh, I'm not happy. Um, he was five pound one. Um, so he was much, he he was, you know, he was, he was a, a good, an okay weight. For that term, when he was born at 36 weeks. Um, but 
you know, they listened to me after a while and said, oh, we'll just take him into special care and just, you know, to, to shut you up. <laughs> I would just run, run through a few tests and, and they took him off to special care. And then a few hours later, I went along to special care and he was surrounded by doctors, just doctors everywhere, just saying, oh, we're just trying to find out what's wrong with your baby. Um, so that day then my grandma my mum arrived um the next day and she was i remember her now rushing up the stairs because she lived in in um Payton in devon mm-hmm. so my neighbor had been da- had gone down to fetch her and um she she arrived thinking oh you know everything was wonderful and then it was like i was in floods of tears saying oh they've taken him in special care we're not quite sure what's wrong with him but they're just going to run a few tests and it should be all right. And then it was just one thing after the other. You know, the, the next day they said he's got pneumonia, that he's obviously come early to save his life. And then they, he needed hernias repairing. And then, but he always felt a serious heart condition that they didn't know about. And then they said to us, you know, every time he went in there, or they'd found something else wrong. Then they said he's got a, a rare chromosome abnormality that um, well, there, it is very rare. We don't really, we can't give, many, give you any prognosis because we don't know. This condition is so rare, we've got no prognosis to give you. But an example is that on medical record, there's only 12 babies like this throughout the world. And, um, and we, we don't know. It was when we got HP plus tiny extra material on his number eight chromosome um so i thought in my naive mind while maybe having a little bit extra he'd be intelligent genius <laughs> <laughs> fine okay. um yeah but and so he was born in june um he had to go over to southampton to have hernias uh, to have his heart surgery he had hernias repaired so he was backwards and forwards um, and he finally came home from home from hospital in October on Dad's birthday. Yeah, and because he had to have open heart surgery, didn't he? Yeah. So up two holes in his heart. And do you think, Mum, that because that was detected quite late in his, you know, when they were trying to find out what was wrong with him, do you think that affected him long term? Oh gosh, yeah, without a doubt. So. I remember he was born on June the 18th and my birthday was on the 6th of July and he always showed that he needed to be in oxygen but they hadn't found out about his heart condition then. Okay. It wasn't until he went to Southampton that they found out about that. Um, so they, they, the sister on duty rang me to say, happy birthday. We've taken him out. He's in air. We've taken him out of oxygen. He's a little bit blue around the mouth. But he's holding his own. And so he really should never have been taken out of oxygen because he had a serious heart condition yeah. that they hadn't detected. Yeah. So that he 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 was very much like a stroke victim. He had a very his left hand side was really rigid. He couldn't do anything with it. No, his right right hand side. He couldn't do anything with it. He used to use his left hand. Um, all down the, the side. Um he he just he, he never used that side um so and i think if it was in this day and age you would be you know it would be you'd be suing 
and yeah. thinking, what's gone wrong? He's had got all of his next problems. Yeah. But because because it was so rare, I think it was just a bit of a waiting game. They they didn't mm. know what was linked to the chromosome, what was linked to anything else, and nobody would give you any really definite answer. It was just, we'll wait and see. Wait and see what happens. And then, so you do wait. Yeah. And the vicar was brought in at one point, wasn't he? Yeah. So when he went over to Southampton to have his heart surgery, um, it was due to be on the Monday. And on the Friday night, they called us to say, he's not going to make it till Monday. We've got to get him in tomorrow morning. And so we went over on the Saturday morning, um, the 26th, it was the 26th of September, um, 1984. Mm-hmm. And the, the vicar was brought in to um, baptise him. Just in case it didn't, yeah, make it. Yeah, but again, you know, I there's no guarantee, is there? But that was the time that I um complete filled up, uh, picked up, and completed uh, to be a kidney donor and a you know a, a donor. Oh. And I, you know, I, that's something that yes, uh, an organ donor. That's the word. Yeah, an organ donor, and that's what I, I just, you know, I carry to this day. So it was in that moment you were like, actually, yeah. if I my death could help someone, I really want to be that person. Yeah. When we sat and waited to know whether he was going to survive or not, um, yeah, I remember picking that up. But I remember going to see, they said, do you want to come and see him before he goes into surgery? I remember walking into this, um, he was in... Special care. No, he wasn't. He was in, um, I can't think of the word, but intensive care. ITU. He's yeah. in intensive care yeah. prior to going down. And they said, to go and, you know, go and just see him. I like, remember walking this big ward because it was an adult ward. It was, you know, full of, it wasn't just all for all babies. And looking around thinking, where is he? I can't see him anywhere. And he was just this little thing on the big bed. And I remember him. I walked round the bed and he looked at me like that. Followed me round the bed and I knew. I said to Dad, "Then he, we, he's going to be okay. He's going to be okay. He's he will survive this. I know he will." Um, but I remember thinking then that, "Oh my goodness me! If he survives this, I just want a normal little boy, a normal healthy little boy." Never for a thought. No. <laughs> Never did I think that. He would survive that, but then he would have lots, lots of other problems. Yeah. And I think if I'd known what lay ahead, I might have thought, oh, I'm going to throw the towel in now because I, I could never cope with all that. But it's a good job you don't know what. Yeah. Most of the Because, you know, I do think now you are only ever given with what you can deal with. Yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah, and so, you know, really, life was never ever going to be the same again yeah because i think as well at at that time you know i've spoken previously on on my original podcast if you want to listen to it it's like the first the first one um my relationship with dad and i think me and you've had lots of conversations but i'm having you where you know dad before before this happened with graham you know he was very much a different person you know and for him to see his little tiny boy and you know being a man and your son 
and that happened you you know you've said before so many times that you lost the man that you knew in that time i think well i i think dad loves sport just loves everything about um and and Carlson graham and he was never going to be able to do those things mm. although at that very time when he was first born he didn't we didn't know about us yeah um that he would never be able to, you know, to play golf that dad loved, play football that dad loved to hit. Um, he'd never be able to do any of those things. So I think, you know, dad wouldn't, like we talk about lots of things of about our feelings, that like dad would keep things close to his chest. But that disappointment, yeah, and that huge disappointment that he didn't, he didn't get, we didn't sign up for this. Yeah. We didn't sign up for this. This is, you just and and really, you are given a baby and you leave hospital with a baby with special needs and you you go home and it's like here you are, yeah. you know, off you go, good luck, um, you know, and and you have to get on with it. You yeah. just have to get on with it. I mean, I at that time I really developed a love of brandy. Well, <laughs> 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 I drank a lot of brandy because it. It numbed it. It numbed the pain. It was, you know, you've got a, a little a toddler and a baby that was just took hours to feed. Out, out trying to get to do anything. It was just relentless. Hours and hours and hours. And um, so much of your time. Yeah. Um, and but- how, Mum, you know, I know that you naturally sit in a positive mindset. Like you, some, you know, that time with Graham, how did you manage to say, like, it's okay, let's keep going? Like, how did you have that? I think you're very, very busy. You are very busy of a, of a mum with um, special needs, uh, a child with special needs. Uh, because, well, any mum with children yeah. is busy. When you've got more special needs, you, yeah, you, you try. We we tried to join in all the other things that families were doing, but <laughs> you know, sometimes you could you could have conversations with other mums with special needs, uh, with children with special needs that you couldn't have with that yeah. normal, um, because you know sometimes you just it's like. Yes, that sounds harsh. It's like a prison sentence, and you you got to go to prison, and you can't get out. You just got to carry on with it. Yeah. But I used to think there's people worse than me. You know, we at least we were in a loving a marriage, a loving relationship. We got already got a little girl that you know was absolutely perfect. I had friends who were single mums, and were also had children with special needs, and. Um, but it, you can have conversations with them. You can say, God, I don't know it. Oh, and, you know, oh, God. And, and I remember trips like Thought Park. Mm. We, went, we would go to Thought Park with on an outing with other, you know, able, able-bodied children. They would be off that coach so quickly, running to what they ever wanted to do. Then they'd go you know, from that onto the next event and the next event and you would be doing we would be just catching up with them at first we sit down for picnic and they'd be finished and they'd be gone on to the next thing it was been like relentless taking it would be taking so long to feed and it's like oh. and you come home at the end of the day absolutely exhausted but you do you do keep because you're a mum don't you yeah. you know you're a mum you it's and i think 
we just you just throw yourself into it. I'm become a little bit obsessed with I've got to exercise him. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. All the things that therapists tell you to do. Yeah. Um, you've got to do this. You've got to do this because the more I can input I can give him, the 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 better he will be. Yeah. And probably you know that was a big factor into. Four years later, we decided yeah. to have Emily. Well, I decided to have Emily and managed to persuade your dad. <laughs> <laughs> because everybody else thought we were mad. You know, like you or, you know, having another baby. But I just knew, I knew that it would be, it would, it, it, it would be fine. We had tests. We made sure that Emily was um, okay. And, and it was the best healing that we could ever have done by having another baby. Because it took all the focus of, you know, of, I mean, you were a strong-minded little girl, but you're, you know, a lot of time was being given to your brother, yeah. who was who needed all this attention, and you would always, you know, be patient and kind with him. Sometimes it was, oh come on! I remember you sitting in front of um, our lounge window when you were about three and looking out the window and saying. Oh, I wish I had a brother or sister oh. that I could play with. And it was so sad because, you know, here's, here's your little brother here, mm. but that, you know, who was not reaching milestones. You know, he smiled when he was 12 months old. He never, he, he, he rolled over, but that was by accident. <laughs> we would place the, the bulking dog further and further away from him. And I think one day he flipped himself over and he was so startled. Like, oh, what's happened to me? I just turned over. But he, he didn't, he never crawled. Yeah. He showed signs of walking when he was, he was eight. So we were really, you know, focusing on that. And then he, um, his hip starts started to dislocate. So we had to abandon, um, that but we tried to to him to have a normal of life yeah. as other boys so he went to cubs he started school when he was three so he actually started before you um and you just try and keep the family as normal yeah. as you can we we have we chose to have respite so we with the lovely family that you know were wanted to help out and so we we accepted the help that we could yeah. to try and keep some normality in the family. Was there ever a time, you know, because Graham, he never walked, he didn't talk, he didn't feed himself, he, his whole life he was wearing pads. Was there ever a time, Mum, where you were like, actually not giving up hope of trying to make him do all these things, but just that point of their, actually just full acceptance of like, he's never going to do you know, he's almost like he's a, an, an adult in a six-month-old baby's body, you know? When yeah. did you ever have that that realisation that this is it? I think I probably did, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I was never going to give in, you know, okay, yeah. need to do this, need to do that, need to encourage this, need to, you know, do all these things. Yeah. Um, do you feel like you lived in hope a lot? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd probably until he was a teenager. Yeah, yeah. Until he was a teenager, we accepted all the um, all the help 
from social services, occupational, yeah, or that you had physio regularly. Um, we moved into a school which was more geared up for his needs. He went on school holidays. So we accepted all the help that we could get. Um, and But I think by the time he was a teenager, he was like, oh, man, this is, you know, he's, ne he's, never, he's not going to be able to do that these things so then you know, the focus then became on right what we've got to make life as good for him as possible mm. as normal as yeah. possible and i just think in in this kind of you know i just want to mention just the people listening like we also how blessed are we were we that we lived in a country that looked after and people with disabilities and special needs are cared for and seen as is important and you know like that I know and if people are listening from other countries they might that might not be the norm and you know it's like yes of course it's hard having a disabled son of anyone with any disability in any um in any life but if you're in a country that doesn't recognize I mean there are still lots of countries in this world that you know if you have a, a child with disabilities they go into a home and that's it you don't see them, you don't hear from them, and they're, it's like, oh, someone will bring shame to the family, how, you know, so the fact that Graham was born in the UK to you and dad, putting in our little environment, I really believe, you know, because he was, his life expectancy was eight, five years, isn't it? They said, right, he'll do well if he lives to five, and he lived till he was 38 years old, yeah. and I really believe that it's, you know, when you get all the love and all the kindness and all the support you can have and you can, you can tr truly get, like he, no one could have loved him more than you did. And so he lived, outlived anyone's expectations of what that we thought was possible for him. I think, so I was one of three girls. My eldest sister, um, she had two children. She had two normal, healthy, active children, and she sadly lost both of them. So she lost her little girl when she was just five. So that was a few years before I started having my children. So I was only 17 at the time. And, oh my goodness, you know, I saw how it affected my sister and her husband, and she was left then with the one child. And then... A few years after Graham was born, my sister lost her son in a motorbike accident. So she had had both. So my nephew and niece, yeah, my cousins, no longer there. Your cousins, yeah, were no longer there. And I thought, I have got Graham. I've got Graham with all his problems, but I have him. Yeah. So just let me all get on with it yeah. <laughs> because I'm blessed that I still got this little one. Yeah. You know, but she, you know, she, my sister adored Graham because, you know, I think she saw everything he had fought so much, you know, to everything all his life and he hung on in there and then, you know, she hadn't got her children anymore. So, you know, if you're looking at grief and despair, there is nothing like losing a child. Yeah. And, and she was like, you know, I... I lost my child, and we'll, you know, we'll go on to that. Um, but he'd had a blooming good life, yeah. and hers, you know, were 
a little girl of five and her son at 19. It's just unimaginable. Hell on earth. Yeah. Or her. And, and it just makes you so grateful that, you know, yeah, that we had the yeah. life that we did with yeah. him. Yeah. We had, I mean, he just, you know, he had uh, just a wonderful life. Oh, gosh. Um, no, he was, yeah, you know, I was a, a, a stay at home mum with him to, for, for 15 years. Mm. So I was always around, I was always around for you and Emily and Graham. And we just, you know, had lovely time school holidays. And um, when we had took on lots of nice holidays and then oh, he always had me there. And then, you know, and then I went back to work. So I didn't go back to work till, till yeah, till he was 50. And, and then, you know, after being, after being at home for all those years, what do you think you can do? You, you know, you, 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 you think you, all your confidence has gone. Technology has moved on so much. What can I do? So I went and I worked in care. <laughs> was very equipped to do that. Yeah. And, you know, I went on then to become a manager and, you know, have a very responsible role. Um, and yeah, and I did that. And and it was, it was being, it's a, always a question of being in the right place at the right time because the job I went on to do, I was educated then to see what was possible for Graham in his in his adult years, mm. yeah. yeah, yeah, I know, and that was that was such a blessing. Oh, yeah. So in this time, obviously, we've got myself. Mm. I've just gone off to London to yep. pursue my career in the performing arts. Uh, Graham mm. has um, just moved out. Yes, and it all just actually no, no, just around. It's a few years before moving out, and then there's Emily, who is just becoming a, a teenager. And so then what happens, you know, obviously I'm out at the scene, but I know, you know, see you then go, you know, going to work um, and Emily's whole life changes. You know, she's then like 14 coming home and no one's there. And she's like, oh, yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, at, we only know this now because she's shared with us that, you know, at that time, um, it was really difficult with Emily where we were like, what's wrong? What's wrong? She always seemed so, like she's so clever, but would just seem, seemed so sad. We thought she was being bullied. We thought that she was a lesbian, you know, not that there's an issue, but we're like, no, Emily, there's nothing that you can't tell us. Yeah. Um, and she then went on to develop a serious, serious eating disorder. Yeah. And I remember... And I, she knows this, so it's not like, but I remember being so angry at her. I was like, as if my mum and dad haven't got enough with Graham. And, you know, both of us, we were so uneducated, weren't we, about um, about anything like that. I was, and I had a terrible time with her trying to force her to eat that fucking chicken and you know, eat this bowl of cereal. And I would, you know, like pour over her. Oh, it was just awful. Um, and... I would then go back to London because I was in the middle of my training, my my stage school life, um, and you were then working. And I remember like calling helplines saying, how can I help my sister? Like how, how? It was just, it was so, it was an awful time for us. Obviously the most awful for, for Emily, for, my, for us, your daughter, our sister. But how do you feel at that time, mum, when, you know, that, was all happening? I think that 
all the problems we've had with Graham, that didn't seem that didn't compare at all mm. to exactly. supporting somebody going through an eating disorder. Mm. Um, because you just do not know what to do. Yeah. And and also you're excluded from from do to help out you're excluded from knowing information about it. So as soon as she was 16, it was like, oh, she's 16, we can't tell you anything. And I'd say, well, I just want to be able to help. What can I do? Oh, well, we can't tell you. You know, we're dealing with the patient. Um, and I remember, we lived in Dorset, I remember going to um, a support group in Exeter. You know, Dad and I went down there just to talk to other parents yeah. whose children were going through, you know, what Emily was going through, because she didn't know what to do. And and I know now that we couldn't fix it. Yeah. Couldn't fix it. Had to be her that fixed it. But what you could do is always be there. Yeah. Always be there to and you know, and, and shouting and ranting raving and trying to force her to eat right, it was completely the wrong thing. Yeah. It was just like being there. And sometimes you just want to shake them and say, Oh, for goodness sake. No, because <laughs> you're wasting your time ever doing anything like that. Just be there. I think that with Graham, it was for me, it was almost easier because I could help Graham. I was in control. I could be his voice. If he needed anything, I could help him. But with Emily, it was, the, I felt helpless. Totally, totally. Totally helpless. Um, and being the bigger sister, being the mom, and not feeling like you can help, it was just it was a, it was just a horrible, horrible time. Um, but she came through it, and I feel like we all learned so much from that. Like I really felt like we learned as a family how to just be there for each other without trying to get too involved, but just being like the unconditional love, the family. Um, and around this time, I um, and I remember it so clearly. I was in a panto in Aylesbury. And you came up to see me in Panto and you were like, so I was 21 at this time. You were like a shell mum, and you were in this red coat and you were just, we went into this pub and mum and dad were there. Um, I think Emily was there and I was like, mum, what, what is it? What's wrong? And dad went off to get the drinks or buy the, like the, get the food order. You were just like convulsing, shaking, like, I'm so unhappy. I need to leave. I need to get out. And we didn't really have a long time to chat. But I remember just saying to you, it's okay, mum. Just leave dad. If you're not happy, you can leave. Like, don't hold on for me. I'm 21. You know, Emily was like 16. You know, Graham would just have to, you can leave. Like, it's okay. You do whatever makes you happy. And I think that was the end of the conversation because then dad came back. But talk to me about the catalyst of that. Like, how did you get to that point? Well, I know, because if we're talking about 2003 here, I know well. <laughs> so 2003, we've got Emily in the throes of her eating disorder. Yeah. We had Graham, who had just moved out of a family home, and he'd gone to live with his friend Simon in supported living. Um, we had Grandma, my mum, who passed away, um, in my arms on your birthday in March 
And then my lovely sister, Hazel, who'd lost her children, um, collapsed and died in the October. So that year was horrendous. So I remember, I remember the red coat. I remember coming to see you at Hanto and just thinking, it was the loneliest time ever. And I just thought, I, you know, it's, I think dad wasn't, was a man of few words. So, you know, you couldn't share exactly how I was feeling with him. Or, you know, if I did, he'd be saying, oh, it's okay, it's okay. Um, but it wasn't. Yeah. But that's how it continued to be for, you know, 15 years after that, before I ever did anything about it. But, yeah, it was just dreadful, dreadful time. Um, so instead, after that, you know, Graham wasn't living at home anymore. And um, it was important. I felt that we still the beautiful family home that we had. We'd had it all adapted for Graham. That I still stayed there, um, and just got on. Just get on. Yeah. yeah. So I went back to work. I um, carved a career for myself mm. in manage management in supported living, and I went from a six pound fifty an hour job to a twenty five thousand salary. Uh, just like woof, um, I did managerial qualifications, and I was I was very very good at my job, very good, um, because my problems and all I'd learnt with Graham, then I was could could help everybody else, um, to also learn learn yeah. learn skills, um, so you know it, the life just continued, it continued, and and then and fifteen years, um. You stayed yeah. with dad. Yeah. I know, desperately unhappy, not seen, not heard, not love, not feeling, all those things that you wanted and also deserve, you know. And I'm sure he felt the same, but we would, you know, he doesn't really speak, so we didn't really know. But and I know so many times you would say, you know, every year, like, come on. But come on, let's, you know, let's go hiking together. Let's get something together. Let's do something, anything. Um, but 15 years, question for you. If that was me and I was saying this to you, what advice would you give to me? Don't be the idiot. Oh, don't wait 15 years. <laughs> No, 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 no. Because what is it, Mum, that you stayed for? That like, were you? What was it that, like, you did? Why didn't you leave? Well, I think in two thousand sixteen, I did the landmark forum. <laughs> yeah, but you all thought it would be a good idea if I did the landmark forum, and I thought, well, why do I want to do that for? You know, and um, but everybody chipped in. You chipped in. Emily chipped in. Dad chipped in, and we. I went off. And I thought the landmark forum. All day I'd be falling asleep. I wouldn't, you know. It's, but I took so much away from that because I realised that the things that I grew up with, um, wanting to be popular, wanted to be good at something, wanted to really excel at other things, um, I used to because I was not that kid who was the top of the class, not the super the very 
very, um, you know, one that everybody loved and like wanted to be around. I wasn't the sports girl. <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't even, I couldn't do very well in the sack race or the egg and spoon race, going back with whenever dad watched me. But I was always wanting to be better. Yeah. And, and, and I think that I just thought the landmark for them made me realize that actually I've, I'm hanging on to all the things that I didn't win the sat race, I didn't do this, I didn't do that. Rather than concentrate on what I am good at, I, I'm always hanging on to all the, my baggage over the years. So I, you know, I wrote, to, I wrote to dad at the Landmark Forum and said, let's, let's start to do lovely things. Let's start to, you know, have fun. Cause it's, that was what I wanted to have fun. But, you know, it just, <laughs> my letter wasn't well received. Um, so I think I, I, it was around about that time that I started, you know, on an online business mm-hmm. and started it with, uh, with you. And we became, you know, I had to learn online. I didn't have an email, I didn't have an iPhone, I didn't have any, didn't have a laptop, didn't have anything. So I had to learn skills, I had to learn skills to make me better. And and I think that's what I started to do. I started to learn things. What can I do to better me? Because yeah. once yeah. I was a better me, I made me stronger. I thought I can I can tackle anything. I can mm. do whatever I want to do with my life. And and all the, the the fear. I think I probably lived in fear for so many years. You know, I'd been a stay at home mum, so I hadn't earned my own money for a long time. I had to rely on somebody else financially. My in my home was all geared up for for Graham, and that I couldn't live anywhere else because he wouldn't um, he wouldn't be able to come and visit me. You know, you just feel all these things. You just it just got so big that I would just I didn't do anything because yeah. just scared. Yeah, um, and, you, and would you say that you didn't really feel financially able oh, to leave Dad? Yeah. So you know that because I think. So many people listening to this can relate. Yeah. It's not that they, you know, they would love to set up their own life and they would love to be free, but they simply couldn't afford to do it. Yeah, They couldn't afford to, to have their own home, pay for their own bills, because, you know, if they're working, it's not enough to cover it, but then, or if they're not working and then look after the children, who's going to look after the children? It's too much childcare. So it's like this situation where you never feel like you can really get ahead. And I feel like this is so, so many mums, especially, probably listening are in that that position. And what I love, you know, you did the Landmark. If anyone that doesn't understand what the Landmark Forum is, the Landmark Forum is, it's like a practical personal development workshop over a Friday, Saturday, Sunday that helps you unlearn the things that are in your mind that are keeping you where you are. And and the best thing about it is you don't know that they're even there until you go and you learn these skills and they teach you things. And it's the most eye-opening, I, you know, hand on heart would say that a massive shift in my life and for the, my success in my life came when I did the Landmark Forum. You know, I think me, you and my sister Emily did. Mm. It, it, was, it opened up a new world of possibility and actually says that in, in Landmark Forum. Um, and it, it cost about six hundred pounds, which I think you know at the time it was a really great investment for us. Um, but that was the catalyst that then went on really for you to change your life. 
we, we started the online business, you know, bearing in mind online, mum didn't even have a computer, have an email, have Facebook, have Instagram. There was nothing. It was this online thing. And mum didn't even know what online meant. But you were, what I loved about you, mum, is that you, you were just willing to be really bad, but still kept going. You know, you would like stand up to speak and then open your mouth and not even a word would come out. And, but that didn't put you off. And I feel like, you know, the lessons that you'd learned from Graham, it wasn't like, oh, you fall back down, so you give up. It's okay. You just keep going and you keep going one step in front of the other, one tiny little toe in front of the other is better than not doing anything at all. Yeah. And, you know, you started and you kept going and you kept going. And even when times when I wasn't really going, you kept going, you kept going. Until, you know, you'd got to a point, both personally, you were so strong in your character and you know you would set yourself this financial goal within your online business and the month you were going for that goal is the month that you left dad yeah yeah wasn't it yeah talk me through and what that was like <laughs> well i um i i started like i used to think personal development was all woohoo i really <laughs> like woohoo oh that's for weird weirdos until I got into the personal development stuff and things that, you know, every morning I would do my miracle morning or get up and I would do an hour before I went to work, I would focus on doing um, my gratitude. And still to this day, I'd just come back from holiday, but I took my gratitude journal and before I'd sit and complete that journal, before I ever went to sleep at night, and I'd written you know, things that principles of and if all it's all going on in there and if you can master what's going on in there it's so easy yeah um so that's what i did so i know that i had to yeah i had to have reach a goal financially for me to and it, i used, i was terrified yeah um so on but on the 30th of september 2019 um it was the day that we moved I've, so I, we lived in a beautiful um four bedrooms you know beautiful detached house in half an acre beautiful and I moved into a rented apartment but I knew that just like we, I'd worked on this so much that I was so focused that I could do it mm. I was selling it was like at Del Boy people coming and coming and going coming and going selling things on Facebook marketplace I'll come at half a seven in the morning um you know they come and pick up beds and sideboards and everything um and dad moved out on the Saturday I moved on the Monday and I'd lived in these house we'd lived there for 28 years and I remember thinking I'm going to be so emotional I got so emotional when I leave this this house but I had a phone call from the removal men to say, look, we've got your furniture. We're just about to drop it. We're going to leave it in the car park Car park if you're not here to let us in. And I had to think, I'll be there. And I ran up the driveway, leaving my beautiful home because I had to be dashing over there um, to let them in. And that was the day that we were, we, me and my team, we'd worked so hard. My team had supported me. They'd known all the... Yeah, the ups and downs and everything that I had to do. And, and it, you know, their skills, I had learned skills that young people can learn and pick them up and just deliver them in a few, a few hours. 
I would be there days and days learning these skills. <laughs> and then I'd get online and I'd think, I forgot what they told me to do. And it was like, it was torture. It was mm-hmm. absolute torture. But you have to be willing to laugh at yourself yeah. and think, I mucked up there. Because if you can laugh at yourself, then the other people are laughing with with you. But what that did, I think it showed it showed everybody that if she can do it, every anybody can. Just just have to have that belief and that determination and that grit. And I think that's what I learned with Graham. Yeah. Or Graham's life. Grit, determination, just keep going, just keep going, just keep going. So yeah. So, yeah. um, and I remember that that day because I'd come down to help you move. We moved <laughs> into your new flat, yeah. and like the close of the month is like midnight at the end of the month. So you've got to get all your orders in to reach that target. So there was like no furniture, but we were like sat on the floor at the table, we like yeah, with a takeaway, um, and we were like you know quite a quite a lot of um, sales off of the target, and I was like, you know. You were like, okay, what else can I do? You're going live on Facebook, going live on Instagram. Like, hey guys, I've just moved in. I'm just going for this goal. We any help? Like, literally, it was just like your heart opened, and you were just like, I'll do whatever it took to reach that goal. And it was like focused mindset, but also that vulnerability that you had shared with everyone, and people backed you. They wanted to support you. And, you know, on the first day in your new life, you also completed that goal, which financially changed your life. And you knew at that point that you could be financially independent. And I, the one thing I am obsessed about now, teach and coach and just talk to anyone that will listen to me is about women being financially independent. It could be an online business. It could be doing nails in the evening. It could be doing lashes, spray tan. It can be selling stuff on Amazon, whatever it is. But you've got to have something. To have no money is is like a prison, isn't it? It keeps you trapped. Yeah. For 15 years, you stayed in a marriage because you didn't have the finances, the finances or the mindset to leave. Yeah. You grew your mindset, your finances grew. And, you know, here we are. And, you know, you were like, right, I'm going to be single forever. I don't want any men. It's just me and my girls and my son, and this is our life. And quite quickly, unexpectedly, you met Tony. <laughs> oh, I love this story. So Tony came along and you were like, oh, I'm definitely not interested in him. <sighs> definitely gay. <laughs> yeah. And just talk to me about what that relate, what this relationship is like, because I feel like, you know, if you, you are, you know, in the, Plus 40, 15, you are single. I really feel like your story with Tony gives us hope. And me and my sister now, you know, if like our relationships aren't too good, we'll actually say, you know, we need someone like Tony. Like Tony is the epitome of what a gentleman and a guy that probably most women would want. So just tell us what, what life looks like now with Tony, mum. Oh. Well, I, Tony, I met Tony in the coffee bar. In January 2020, just before lockdown started, when I was looking for my white Mercedes, he had a white Audi parked outside. <laughs> and um, I had written, so just before I had left my marital home, I had written everything. If if there was ever um, to be a man in my life again, 
all the qualities that I would be wanting. And there was everything on there, you know, that um, he would be respectful. It would be fun. I think the fun, kindness and generous um, were just right up there at the top, that he would never interfere with my family, never interfere with my girls or this. But I'd also put on there, I want a George Clooney lookalike. <laughs> I'd got a vision board. I've got a vision board with a picture of, uh, um, you know, a, a silver-haired guy with a lady sitting on his back, or back, back, you know, p- giving a piggyback. That was me, and I was on the back of George Clooney in my mind. <laughs> but Tony didn't look anything like George Clooney at all. So I thought, Mm-mm, no. Um, but he, you know, he. He liked me for the word go, but all throughout lockdown, we used to meet at 7am walks and we would, if he came closer than two metres, of course, I'd say, two metres, Tony, two metres, stay away. Um, <laughs> just, he, he wouldn't he would, there was no, I mean, he was a great, great friend, but there was no romance. And it took, again, the universe knows what you need, and it took me to have an accident and fall off my bike mm-hmm. in September 2020 to stop me in my tracks, to make me think, actually, yeah, this guy is still hanging around. I don't think he's gay. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's fun. He's just so lively and energetic. I should have known because he had a daughter. He has a daughter called Emily. And I've got an Emily, and his other daughter's called Kate, and I've got a Nicola Kate. Um, but he's still hanging around, and by everything I want, I want you know, I wanted somebody to who else is going to cook, clean, change my beds, run the Hoover around every week, sort my summer wardrobe out into winter. Who else is going to do all those things? So I and and I was I was really worried that if our relationship developed, it was so we were such good friends. If we crossed the bridge, sort of thing, and it became more intimate, that I think, oh no, this I want to go back to being a friend, and it's really difficult to do that. So we were together for almost a year before we crossed the bridge. <laughs> but you know what? It's just it, we have. Life is fun. Life is, you know, it's, and, and I, that's one of the things that I, I, you know, I think of that you will never, you will never be able to move forward unless you're willing to let go of the past. Yeah. And that's what leaving a marriage, um, did for me by leaving that behind. A bit, I qualified as a Reiki practitioner and it was just like, let all that go. Yeah. You go to move forward to a new life, you have to let go of the old. And and that's what I did. And so yeah, so you know, when Tony and I have been together I've known him for three years now. Mm. And yeah, life is just just great. Just like I feel like a twenty five year old. Um just yeah, just fabulous. It's good. You know, so um for us as obviously as your children seeing you. It's like he allows you to just be you mm. and loves you exactly as you are, but also allows you to like come out of your shell, you know, like just, oh, it's just so wonderful to watch. And so I hopefully Tony would listen to this and we love you, Tony. Thank <laughs> you for making our mom so happy. Um, but also I feel like what Tony did for you and the universe brought Tony into your world because 
obviously I'm living in Ibiza. Emily's jetting off here, there and everywhere. And, you know, in an ideal world, we'd all live in a little house together and we'd be able to support you being there. But obviously when Graham then became really seriously ill, Tony was there. You know, wasn't he unconditionally there supporting you, giving you space, but being there at that time. And so it was, of course, about a year and a half ago, isn't it now, that Graham first became, we'd know, is terminally ill. Talk me in how that was. He, well, in November 2021, yeah. he had a, a massive bleed. Um, he was vomiting up a lot of blood, mm. so he was taken into hospital, and and there they diagnosed that he's got um, liver disease. Now, now I thought liver disease. He doesn't drink. He's only ever, ever drank water. I had never given him fizzy drinks. Would wanted to look after his teeth, so he'd had water. Um, but it was a fatty liver disease, and it was just how his body processed everything. So for the year from twenty twenty one. It was horrendous. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Tony, you know, used to pick me up, take to hospital, be there when I left hospital, take me home, you know, dinners out, just just there. And I used to sometimes I would, and and also, you know, I would I would book things. I took something for his birthday and then cancelled it last minute because I've got to. And said I've got to be. I've got to take Graham for an appointment. Um, he he always knew that. He wasn't number one. <laughs> Gray will always be number one. So, Tony, sorry, mate, you're not going to get a look in. Gray will always be number one. But he was happy to be number yeah. Um And, yeah, he was like, I wouldn't know what to have done without him yeah. because, you know, he, he could just talk to him about anything. And, so, you know, sometimes I would repeat myself over and over again. And I, I would pretend, you know, I think I was the doctor. I, I, become, I became so knowledgeable on the liver yeah. and its functions that I'm, yeah, I used to just, but he was happy to be there. He was really, really happy to be there. And then, you know, and then, you know, I, I had to sometimes cancel holidays because Graham became more and more poorly. Um, and, and it followed, it followed a pattern. You know, so I think Graham had something called a TIPS procedure to give him extra time. But the whole of last year, he, you know, he ch he changed considerably. He um he slept. He used to come to visit me, and and also, you know, the the my idea that Graham I could never come and stay with me. Um, of course he did because I found a home that he could come and visit. He loved it here. He how he was with me. Graham was with me on the day that I found the, the my little flat. He came and saw it. He loved it. He had a big beaming smile. So that was. He couldn't speak, but that was his smile was, yeah, I love it here, Mum. He used to love to come and visit me. Um, so, you know, it's just every month he seemed to be admitted to hospital. And then, you know, in June last year when Graham was admitted and they rang us and said he's got hours to live. Mm. Do you remember that? Yeah. I called you in Ibiza and, um, and you came over. You came over and you, you know, were with him and us and and he of course he lived longer. <laughs> because we we loved him back to life. Yeah. You know, we did. We just he was full of 
that hospital room, you know, there was so much love and yes. stroking his head and Emily gently giving him drinks and, you know, you reading to him. Yeah. He must have thought, I'm not going anywhere. And he lives with So he defied all the odds. You know, the yeah. doctors was like, oh, is he still here? Yeah, I mean, he's still yeah. here. He's not yeah. going anywhere. And he wasn't going anywhere until, you know, in, until it was his time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so... You know, Tony, yeah, Tony was with us through all that. Um, and then, you know, sadly, when, when Gray did decide it was his time in October, um, yeah, we were, you know, me, Emily and Emma, you know, Emma Gray was always supported by amazing diverse abilities. I would have, you know, they just, just been, you know, just lifesavers really. Mm. And Emma, who has been with him for 19 years, yes, she's just, yeah, we were, we were there when, when I think everybody thought, oh, he's killed Vance back again, yeah. Vance back again. But, um, you know, sadly he didn't. And yeah, and yeah, we had the 4th of October, he, he went on to better things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, 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 um, you know, he's, he's not with us, but he is with us. I talked, I, I said to him, you know, today, I'm going to do something. I'm going to chat to Nick on a podcast, Gray. <laughs> you know, be here, sit on my shoulder, making sure that it's, it's a good one. But, um, yeah, so he, yeah, we, uh, yeah, it's what, you know, life without Gray. And I think moving forward, it's to do the things that, you know, that I've got the freedom to do now yeah. because obviously, you know, life was different. I always had to be at the end of a phone. I think when, when, you know, after his, my first trip away, I came to Act I be the two days after his funeral. Yeah. Oh God, I sobbed as we left Bournemouth because I'd never been away and not had to be at the end of the phone in case I was needed. And I would say I didn't need to be there. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah, it's what we do now and moving yeah. forward. Yeah. What we do now, you know, we haven't got him here, but just doing things that we can do it because we can. Yeah. And we, you know, we, and I, I made, I, there was no, in his period of time, um, when he became really poorly, there was no, there was nothing that we didn't say to him. Mm. I talked to him about everything and he would, you know, he's got no words, but I used to say, you know, Graham, look at me and I'd make sure they really engaged. So he just, you know, this deep stare that he knew exactly what I was saying. Um, so there's nothing that I didn't, you know, no words that weren't said. And so, yeah, we did everything we could when we were able. And just recently, you've had, you spoke with a medium, haven't you? Oh, well, I mean, the medium found me. <laughs> we were, I was at a wedding. Um, and she just, she just told me things. She reeled these things off. She said, he's here. He's here. He's with me now. He wants, he wants to say, it's about funeral. And it was like, Ugh. and she, you know, it was just like he was there. Well, he was there. He was telling her what to say to me, um, things about how loved he felt, you know, totally loved. Um, that we we got the music. I'm talking about you got the music so right. He could never have, <laughs> have done anything. And 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 even there was a time when 
at Christmas, New Year, I went away for that time because I've had him here with me for 37 years, so I wanted to be away. She recognised, because she told me, there was a time you that you connected with him. And I thought, I do. You know, on the balcony in Lanzarote, on a Tuesday night, Tuesday night was the night he passed away, I went and sat outside and there was just this stillness and just, yeah. But she, yeah, she knew everything. And... It was like, wow. And I didn't have an appointment with her. <laughs> I bumped in found you yeah. at a wedding. Yeah, it's so magic. It was. And it was, yeah. She was she was talking so fast. She said, I don't make it. It doesn't make any sense to me, does it to you? I went, yeah, perfect sense. Perfect sense. I went straight home. I came straight home and I wrote it all down. Because that's what I do. You know, if it's something that they think it's there and think, I need to always remember this. So it's always crystal clear. I write it down. Just love that so much. And, and and something that we talk about often is that, you know, Graham was trapped inside his body that couldn't do anything. And when we're here in Ibiza and we're walking on the walking on the beach and the sun's shining and the waves are going, it would be like Graham now would be we know it, it we both had don't we have this sense that he's like like a little like spirit, like a of surfing over the waves yeah like an imp almost like surfing over the waves going hi i'm here and like using his voice and using his body that he never was able to do it's almost like his his body has been set free to something that is better than what was on this earth and you know we never really knew did we mom that if he you know we would speak to him and talk to him as if he could speak and talk back we never really knew if he understood us or what was going on. But I think that on his passing, it was like he knew everything. Mm. It just, it was confined to this being um, and everything that was, that we were saying, everything that he knew, everything, everything was going on. Yeah. And then since he's been released, it's like he's allowed to be who he could have been here on earth. Yeah, well, just like strange things happen, like strange things happen. Lights come on, because lights dim, go down, come up, they flick on and off. Yeah, it's just, yeah. And, and and yeah, like you, I I even a couple of days after he passed away, I I went down to the sea and I could. It was like he was skimming across the water yeah. in the distance, going hi, hello, yeah. and it was like yeah, and it's like it, it's. You know, it is, it is really, really sad, but it's it's exciting. It's that yeah. joy that, oh, great. I don't, you know, I miss the fact that you can never feel him. And sometimes I I just go back through my phone for videos and that where I can hear his voice and like see him and hear him and that, that's priceless. But yeah, special. <laughs> very, very special. And so, mum, for you, what's next? You're 63. Well, my goodness me. 63, the beginning of a new relationship. Life, you know, is, you know, Graham has passed. You've, so, you know, that this is the next chapter. What are you going to do with it? Well, I made a promise that I'm going to do scary things. I just say, Gray, I'm going to do scary things. And, and, and so far, I've only done a zip wire. 
And I stood on that zip wire thinking, oh, I'm so nervous, I'm so nervous. And I just thought, I made a promise. Well, I made a promise. Get off his and and, and let go. Whoosh. <laughs> oh, it's gone down the zip wire. But to do things, to do things because I can. Yeah. And then to do things that he couldn't do, you know, that would and 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 to laugh a lot and to laugh out loud. And and just to, you know, to have joy. To, to continue to be like, you know, best mum I can be, the best nanny I can be to Minnie and Margot. Um, but to, you know, to keep healthy, to be strong, you know, I, I do some, I, I'm not, I go to a gym, would you believe, first time ever in my life, gym, gym member now. But to be, you know, to be as strong and healthy as I can be, to enable me to do anything I want to do, you know, it's just a number. It's just a number. Yeah, absolutely. And if I didn't look at my face and see a few wrinkles, or oh, quite a lot of wrinkles in the mirror, I, th- I, feel, I feel 25, 30. Yeah. You know, it's just, and you just, you know, life's for living. I just love you that know, so much. Got to, you know, go out there and live it. And, Mum, yeah. with every single podcast, we always finish asking our guests the same question. And that question would be, what advice would you give to your younger self? It would have to be, don't live in fear. Don't live in fear of, oh, I can't do this, or I'm worried about that, or that might not be right. There's probably never a perfect time to do anything. And, um, you know, the things that I, I look back now, and think I did everything right, you know, raising a family, being a, you know, because I think I was a great mum for Grey. I think I was a good wife, you know. Um, I think, you know, hopefully dad's gone on to better things now and he he's happy, which is great. Um, but, yeah, not to live in fear and be prepared to let it go. Yeah. If you don't know what's, what lays ahead, it'd be so much better. Yeah. Amazing. You are a mum in a million. I'm so grateful um, that I got got you. And we got each other. Exactly. And them. Um, um, yeah, it's us three now, Graham's Angels. Yeah, absolutely. Our little WhatsApp chat of Graham's Angels. Um, <laughs> I'm so stupid. I'm only going to say goodbye <laughs> on the end of this podcast, but I just thought it was really important to, you know, get you on here and you know share like just as a tiny bit of your life. I've always said you've got to write a book, Mum. You've got to write a book because there are so many, there'll be so many mums, even people giving birth right this very second that are stepping into the unknown and that fear and that worry and that shit what is this gonna look like and I just feel like your story you know being so normal so average as you put it but making the best out of every single second of every single day with the life and and what you've got given in life and I just feel like that is just such a powerful message and I hope that you know if there is a listener listening to this that 
you know, has is going through that, or you have a friend that is this happening, just to to get them to listen to this podcast because you know the one thing that I will always remember and take away from from growing up is that um, we were chosen. We are a special family, and we were chosen to have Graham in our life. And what joy and lessons and and the people, the person that I am is everything because of of the life that I grew up as as a a child and having Graham in that life and and how incredibly special and blessed we were to have him. Um, And so if you are a new mum going through that, like it is a wonderful, wonderful gift even though at times, of course, it's going to be hard. But you were chosen, you were special. And, you know, look at my mum as this example, like what she's gone on to achieve. And, you know, being a very young 63-year-old, her whole life is ahead of her to create that next chapter of bloody well fabulousness. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, mum, thank you so much for joining us. I can't wait for the book. I do. I feel like in every few years, you know, when thinking, right, you and Tony are not jet setting so much, or maybe, you know, it could be writing it from the beach somewhere. Your book will be a very, very wonderful one and, a, and almost like a Bible of, of how to, to be, you know, a mum in, in that situation. Yeah. Um, so, fingers crossed. But again, Thank you so much for joining us, mum. And um, we will see you soon. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.